And before we were recording, we were talking about the this grocery store in Ohio. Uh, Jason and I have been to a handful of times called uh, Jungle Gems. And uh, I don't want this to be an advertisement, but if you ever pass through Southeast Ohio, you got to check this place out. It's just, it's absurd. It's the only way I can describe it. It's just absurd. Jungle Gems is basically a mall-sized grocery store. Yeah, set the uh, scene for us with Jungle Gym. I'm very... So it's like in the hinterlands of Sin- uh, uh, outside of Cincinnati. And it's just the, the it's just a mall-sized grocery store. Like more variety of of goods and products than you could ever imagine in one place. Like entire sections of this store, the size of a normal grocery store, all dedicated to like uh, a country. Um, or, or like, you know, you Google image jungle gyms and the, you, one of the first things that comes up is like the butter bar, right? Just this enormous selection of butters from all across Europe and America. Uh, you know, Jeremy was saying that like, you know, Jeremy was talking about how they they have this gigantic selection of honeys from all around the world. So you can go and, you know, eat honey at the place where you're you're going to be traveling on vacation beforehand so you can start building up your like pollen immunity to the to the allergies at this place like all just just insanity right just like pure insanity in terms of the amount of stuff it's unbelievable it's mind-boggling and it's full of like these animatronics as well so you know you got the old old school like you know talking dull bananas doing doing jigs and jingles and you know uh, you got you got the you know a tony the tiger animatronic in the cereal section you know the cereal section ain't just part of an aisle the cereal section is multiple aisles (laughs) worth of Mm-hmm. You know, for cereals from all around the world, like it is just it is it, it you know it's called Jungle Gyms International Market, and it really is a weird kind of a weird like vector of of, of power in America. Like if you think about like you know um, Neil Gaiman's American Gods, um, like Jungle Gyms should have been one of those like like vortexes of American power um, where, you know, that in, in American gods where like, that's truly where the, uh, the God of trade, uh, the God of globalization lives in jungle gym. That's, that's, that's its kingdom. Um, and it's so, it's such a bizarre thing to be in between Dayton and Cincinnati in the middle of nowhere to have like, <laughs> <laughs> all of these, you know, corn-fed Midwesterners can go and get like products from Slovenia uh, and, and <laughs> Kyrgyzstan and shit like that. <laughs> He's not kidding. You know, <clears throat> the last time I was there, and I noticed there was a huge demographic shift because it, the first few times we started going there, um, about 15, 16 years ago, it uh, was the international section was mostly European. And now the European section is smaller and smaller and smaller. And they have all this stuff from like uh, Central and North Africa, a bunch of stuff from the Middle East, and not just an India section, but regions of India have their own aisles as well, too. And that just reflects on the shifting demographics of of a state like Ohio or like surrounding states that they started carrying a lot of this stuff because people were making trips there to buy products from home. That's the kind of American entrepreneurship that I want to see. 
<laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I want VCs investing in uh, Jungle Gym, mar Jungle Gym's markets all over the country. <laughs> <laughs> it's wild. I mean, there should be a Jungle Gym's, um, like a like a Jungle Gym hub in every region of the U.S. Uh, and people make you know uh, make their trips there. They make their Hajj to Jungle Gym annually to stock up on 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 goods and products from around the world. Uh, it, it, I, I think about like the, those pictures when, during the cold war, when Khrushchev came to visit the U S and he was like, there's these pictures of him at a, at a supermarket, you know? And, and he's kind of, he's, he, you know, the, the whole idea is that he's, you know, meant to be like, uh, blown away by an American supermarket, you know, where you can get, you know, uh, fruits and vegetables, um, you know, all around suburbs of the, uh, of America, um, that whether they're in season or out of season, they're always available to every suburban American at your local Kroger or Albertsons or something. And, you know, there's like pictures of Khrushchev, like, uh, holding up like melons at a soup at a supermarket and you know kind of looking in the frozen food section like there, there are these wild photos of, of of him and the whole idea is like it, it like the whole idea is that he's meant to be like bowled over by american consumerism um like the the might of american consumerism uh, in reality i think like like those were those are interpretations told of these photos right like i think khrushchev was was most impressed by like some of the more mundane things not like that you can get like cantaloupes in a kroger or something however if khrushchev was taken to jungle gyms the cold war would have ended like immediately <laughs> that very like that very moment khrushchev would have signed a pact to say we are american now <laughs> you know <laughs> like jungle jim would have brought the cold war to an end uh if 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 khrushchev were taken there instead of taken to a a food lion or a Publix or some shit uh, let's see what is the single most kind of confounding thing you found in this place where you're like who i don't think a single person in this area is buying this shit let alone eating it i know for a fact that they have a really large 10 fish section oh yeah and <laughs> people in ohio famously don't eat seafood because it's fucking seafood man the size of the 10 fish aisle there does not reflect who lives nearby there, who's going there repeatedly. This is like... Can we talk? What, why don't they eat seafood? Oh, man, it's Ohio. Like, I wouldn't eat anything out of any of the the Great Lakes. Oh, yeah. I, the Ohio I'm River kidding. is not... <laughs> I mean, I can't say shit. I grew up in Mississippi where we were catching mullet in the Gulf that I'm sure had fucking all kinds of nasty shit in it and still frying it up and eating it. But, you know, like, you know, if I if I were to talk to my father-in-law and ask him why he doesn't eat seafood. It's just, he's like, I went to California in my early twenties. I tasted real seafood, came back to Ohio. Nothing compared ever, uh, nothing compared since. So I get that. But yeah, it's just confounds me seeing that huge 10 fish aisle. And like the only people on there are people that are like real, yeah, 10, you know, like people that like 10 fish aficionados, which I guess is a hipster thing. Now I wasn't aware of. It's not a hipster thing. It's a psyop. Let's be clear about this. Their big tin fish is um, 
is drop shipping 10 fish. Okay. <laughs> I don't believe for a single second that there's a, is there's this much demand for this shit. <laughs> I'll prove it one day. I swear to fucking God, I'll prove it. Well, I walked into a store the other day that sold nothing but tin fish. And I was like, you guys are laundering money. I, I don't fucking- know, though. That's the most Brooklyn <laughs> shit. That's the most Brooklyn shit I can imagine, though. No. Fucking, y'all be, y- 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 you can have a whole store dedicated to Ortiz, uh, tin fish, and, and, and that shit would thrive. You ever play Come those, on. You ever play those uh, little video games where like you try to build a drug empire? And you buy like <laughs> you buy like five of one thing and then you get five of the next thing and as you get each of more of the you oh yeah runners, a, you know a, a quote-unquote video game a video game for any federal <laughs> listeners um every time half most of the bodegas in my neighborhood feel like that they feel like one of the bodegas you would have gotten in that video game you know and when i walked into this tin fish place that is the same energy i got (laughs) i mean i do routinely come across shops that make absolutely no sense in terms of like the financials so like i know i know y'all are laundering something through here no my favorite my favorite is one that's literally here and it's just like you know I like the grill never been on half the store you when you walk into any bodega there's a full, the full store and then the back and then there's a you know door or bathroom maybe half of the bodega is empty and there's a giant pane of bulletproof glass that sits in the middle of the bodega bisecting it um and what's left is candy at the front desk and some snacks. Those, those, those kind of stores have popped up all over Melbourne, but they're oh, really, they call themselves vape shops, but they, okay. Yeah, okay. No, see, I'm think I know what you're thinking, but when I say the glass bisects it, I mean, literally like three, if this were a 20 by 20 room, 10 by 10 of it is literally just behind a glass wall and there's nothing there. There's literally <laughs> nothing behind that glass wall except the door to another room. That's where they keep the weed. And then <laughs> yeah, you catch a right. glimpse and you catch a glimpse of what's <laughs> happening in that other room and it's just a bunch of uh, women in their underwear counting money. <laughs> what is the password, Edward? <laughs> no, see, that was the password to get into the room but there's a password once you get in the second area what is it real quick on jungle gems i i do remember uh talking about like the wildest thing that we saw there and this goes to what jeremy was saying too about there being like stuff from the middle east but even like 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 specific parts of the middle east not just a blanket middle east you know section that's a half an aisle or whatever i do remember uh finding uh camel at Jungle Gyms, you could buy uh, camel steaks and ground camel, camel? Um, there. Yeah, camel. The, the uh, animal. The animal. Never. I ain't talking I about the even, cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, that's what I assumed at first. Then I, I mean, of course. Now I think about it, I'm, I'm like, yeah, of course people eat camel. I've just literally never heard in my life someone talk about eating camel. I've never had it. I would try it. There are a bunch of camels yeah, in Australia. I try, I try it. The uh, the Australian outback has like 
I, I think some of the largest camel herds in the world. Um, I would try that shit for sure. I know that there are places that sell it here. Um, but I, I just you just gotta go to the, the right almost the right halal animals. I think almost any animal I try at least once. Some you only can try once. <laughs> I remember finding pig heads at jungle gyms. I and I mean like like whole just saran wrapped pig head. Yeah, yo, the first time I had a real pig roast, that shit does not play. What the fuck? I could I could not have pork for a little bit after Dude, that. Dude, cheek meat is the best. Uh, the best meat on the pig. It's so crazy. Well, I mean, yeah, chick meat is pretty fucking good in general, too, right? But it's just, like, crazy when, like, having a full roast, like, something that, you know, you put your ass into it for the whole day makes you think makes me think yeah. about all the like pre-cut meats that i might get or pick up real quickly and just how they just they don't fucking compare even if i spend a day or two on that shit mm-hmm. jathan you're you're gonna have to have a boucherie when you have your uh your wedding celebration and yeah. in, in the states we're just gonna have to have a boucherie we're gonna have to get a pig we're gonna have to have sections everybody's gonna break it down everybody's got a responsibility I'm down. I'm. I'm. High. I'll. 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 I'll hire Listen, Koshan, the thing you don't understand Koshan is your two Bushiri. southern boys. They're gonna cook crazy. They're gonna cook crazy, <laughs> and I'm gonna be there. Oh. <laughs> I love it. These are these are y'all understand. These are two crazy southern boys. <laughs> y'all know how they do. <laughs> uh. Thanks for listening to the first episode of This Machine Grills. Yeah. Oh, it's, my God. Uh, <laughs> into food and, I don't know, maybe the end of TMK, because we're over here espouting capitalism. We're going to do yeah. a special <laughs> Patreon live where you just watch us goof off. At, maybe we don't put it the way. We just put it on the pig as it slowly <laughs> rolls and spins. <laughs> Look. You don't. You can be anti-capitalist while you can be anti-capitalist while also being in complete awe and wonder at a place like Jungle Gyms, okay? Because, because hey, all we have in this in this whole life of ours, this whole world of capital, is uh, an immense spectacle of commodities. You know, the the wealth. Of, of, of capital presents itself as an immense accumulation of commodities. We are only able to enjoy life, eke out any kind of enjoyment of life th- by and through commodities. And and the, it, you know and if that's the only thing available to us, then nothing else, nothing, everything else pales in comparison to jungle gems, right? Jungle gems is truly the 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 you know that is. That is the kingdom of God. You know, if capital is a God and, 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 and capital's uh, power is presented through commodities, then the jungle gym is the kingdom of God. And, and you know, it, it, it ain't the God that we deserve. It ain't the God that we want, but it's the only one that we have. And you can go and worship him at jungle gyms and, and, and bathe in his glory. Is the founder called jungle gyms? I would love to know more about that. His, his name is gem something or another i will add to what jathan said though is that is the only grocery store i haven't been kicked out of for walking around drinking oh yeah oh because you 
can actually do that in this store. They have a full service bar and you can buy it and walk around the store and drink while you shop. It's an experience. It's a full experience. Uh, you, you go and you, you, you can spend multiple days at Jungle Gyms and, and, and be better for it. I just know it. that if this boy's name, nickname was Jungle Jim, he's a crazy ass white boy. I just know it. <laughs> this man a white man is behind this and he has he has just has the world's fair food and his name is jungle jim what's going on <laughs> i just looked it up uh it was um his name is jim but it's uh jim bonamanillo <laughs> <laughs> His name is Jungle Jim Bonamanillo. Yeah, the food from every culture, you know. Just the most Italian He's man. The, the son of Italian grocers, man. It. He's living the real American I dream. I love it. We the is the most powerful, maybe the le- most least racist Italian in America. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I was really scared it would be owned by like some private equity giant who some dude who hasn't seen the sun in five years and has blood yeah. draped, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know Jason Kalanakis is listening to this episode right now. He's like on the all, all in podcast going, Boys, I have a financial, yeah, they could take it over you. probably. They got enough capital between them and the and the rigging. The they'll never, <laughs> they'll never, they'll never wrest control away from yeah, this is the people's. <laughs> international market that's right <laughs> yeah you don't you don't mess with italian americans i know that i watch the sopranos <laughs> <laughs> do you like food from other regions you'll never visit in your entire life well come on down to um cincinnati ohio apparently for some reason where you can get literally anything you can imagine in this fucking mall It is episode 312 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And right before we hopped on to, to record, I saw something come across the wire. Uh, came came across my desk, and I, I knew I wanted to bring it up right away. Um, so it's a new startup that I just saw called Vey. Now, I won't do a guess the startup game because honestly, none of the copy uh, for the startup is good enough where I can like, um, you know, blank some of it out for fun guessing. So I will just tell you what it is. Uh, I, 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 I lo- honestly, I love this. I love this startup because of how just how, how, how real it is and how honest it is. Um, so the, the press release. They launches commercial driverless mobility service with remotely driven cars in Las Vegas, Nevada. So they is a, is a, is a car service that's just, just launched in Vegas, um, where 
It's all electric cars, and you can you can use using the app. You can call them on demand, uh, and they will get and they will be delivered to you driverless. But how how is that working? You might ask. Not through autonomous mobility, they the but through teledrivers. Literally, people playing Gran Turismo in like a a, a Vey hub somewhere in Vegas, driving the car remotely to you wherever you order it, so that you can then drive yourself to your destination, get out, park the car, and just forget about it. Just walk away, like, and you you only pay for the minutes that you spend actively driving the car or you can in the app, you know, uh, uh, bake in some like stopover times if you want to like stop and do some shopping on the way to your destination. And then you just pay a set amount, either per minute driving or per minute during stopover. Um, but the the whole idea is you just have these like teledrivers that are way like they they deliver the car to you. You drive the car wherever you want, and then when you're done with the car, you just get out, leave it somewhere, and then you just forget about it. And the teledriver takes over and drives it back to some other uh, uh, person who's ordered it, or or somewhere else in the city. I, I I love this idea of like just doing away with the whole bullshit promise of autonomous mobility, most of which has these hidden teledrivers anyways, and just, just fully being like, no, this is, this is just teledriving. This is actually what driverless mobility looks like in reality, and we just have to embrace it. And it finally took a German startup to embrace the pragmatism of being like, you drive yourself where you want to go, and then when you're done, uh, uh, somebody else will remotely take control of the car. But at no point is there any uh, any facade that the car is driving itself. Sounds kind of like um, sounds kind of like a plot point of a certain uh, uh, past guest's uh, most recent fiction novel titled wrong way that we you know like i'm i'm is it too is it too it's not too late enough time has passed i can do a little spoiler or maybe not but core core plot point is essentially this and what a surprise i mean this also reminds me um i felt i felt like i i wanted to like send in like a like a threat, like a, you know, not, not a death threat, but like a threat, you know, to the federal reserve, they'd be like raise interest rates now because <laughs> I heard of, of a similar startup where, uh, you do car rentals, <clears throat> but they offer them at half the rate, but they also have someone drive the car to you. To, so that you can drive off and then they ride off an electric scooter um to their next car that they have to drive to another person and how you know what's the one what's the, what's the business model two um an interesting way to like both make the labor invisible and visible um and three kind of both tapping into the people's hopes of having like autonomous vehicles, but also just letting them know like, ah, we're eh, enough of all that bullshit. We're not going to get there, but we can get you. Isn't it cool that we can kind of almost get you there with technology and human labor. 
um, you know, with a mechanical Turk essentially. And, and I'm, so I'm really fascinated by kind of like the premise and, and the level at which this sort these sort of startups are operating at, right? No, we can't automate labor away. Yes, we can make it seem like it's mostly technology and labor's integrated a little bit into the process. Uh, isn't that fascinating? Don't you want to spend money on it? We'll make it cheaper for now as a service for you to use, and then we'll hike up the prices later because you understand how hard this shit is to do. I I love the copy here too because it's like it's so well crafted uh, as to be you know deceptive but not lying. So they yeah, say I mean- <laughs> they, they becomes the first company to drive cars without a person inside on public roads in Europe and the U.S. So I mean they're not lying. It's so funny. I love, I love like the three sentence long. <laughs> Technically, yeah, because they can be like you. You know, well, what about like, you know, Waymo or, 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 you know, these other autonomous mobility cars that are actually operating on public roads? It's like, yeah, but, but, but they is the first company to drive cars without a person inside. You know, those, the, the, it's, it's not the autonomous mobility. It's, there is actually somebody driving the car. But without a person inside, like I just Insane. love the, the the wording is so precise as to be truthful but deceptive at the same time. Um, but but honestly, I, I mean, I I can't hate this because I do love that they have just completely spun what everybody what everybody else does with Potemkin AI, which is to like hide the labor, right? Have the fo- the the photomation, have the ghost workers have the hidden humans, um, hide the labor and call it AI. I kind of love that this company has just fully inverted that and used that as their marketing pitch for, for investment. Is that like, we have teledrivers, which makes us safe. You know, it makes us like, it makes us safe. It makes us convenient. Uh, it means that there's always somebody uh, watching and they call it human machine collaboration, which is also very funny too, because that is literally just driving a car is, uh, is human machine collaboration. Um, but they're like, this is the future of human machine collaboration. What if you had like, uh, Twitch streamers um, driving <laughs> driving an electric vehicle um, like a video game, uh, but but they're actually driving it in real life. If I asked you to guess uh, what tech company last invested in, in them, do you think you'd get it? I give you I give you three guesses. Uh, what what tech company? What tech company invested in them? I don't. Is it? Uh, I'm gonna go with like. Is it like Google, right? Is this a kind of like a Waymo? Technically, it's an angel investor who works at the tech company, but he's an executive there. But no, not a Waymo, not a Google situation. Okay, okay. Um, An angel investor who works at a big tech company. I mean, I know it's not. Uh, and this is also too practical for him. But anytime you say angel investor, I immediately think Balaji <laughs> Srinivasan. <laughs> I mean, Actually, I know it's not him. <laughs> so, so there's a teledriver, and then there's a guy above the teledriver who's mining Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I don't know who 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 invested. Who invested? 
the co-president, chief product officer, and chief research officer of Spotify. <laughs> oh, because this is because it's a because this is just European innovation. That's why. right. Yeah, yeah. What we yeah we're just building another Airbus, but for Europe, you know. <laughs> I think also it's it's a very interesting when, and this also kind of gets back, you know, one of my little pet peeves with how Europe kind of conceives tech. I mean, this is also a problem with how everyone conceives tech. But, like, a lot of Europeans, their the ambition, the horizon of their tech policy is um, European blank, and the blank is just like an American firm. We need a European Google. We need a European Boeing. We need a European Facebook, you know. And, and and one, you know, that's never going to happen. It's not going to happen for a lot of reasons. It's not going to happen because there's no Silicon Valley, and it's not going to happen because there's no history that created the Silicon Valley. And it's also not going to happen because there's no geopo- there's no geopolitics underwriting it, right? We have Silicon Valley. We have the history of Silicon Valley. And, you know, we have a massive global financial uh, economic system that underwrites most of our investment decisions and the larger structures that guide those investment and innovation decisions, right? Um, but still, nonetheless, European tech policy a lot of times ends up being either uh, European version of Waymo, I guess, um, European version of you know, oh, uh, whatever autonomous division is going on in one of these companies, but more practical. You know, we want growth, of course, of course, we still want growth. We're capitalists, but within reasonable bounds, you know, the thing that distinguishes us from those crazy Americans is, you know, we know that 20% rates and 10% rates are bullshit. We just want 5% rates and um, you'll have a little screen where you get to see the person pretending to be your autonomous driver, right? No one's here. Of course, you can't do level five autonomous driving, right? You just do level three and it, and you have a little servant drive you around from point A to point B. Yeah. And you can still call it a driverless mobility. You can still call it robo taxis. I mean, these are all the headlines too. Like, Which is also honestly even more as if not even more cynical than how Americans would have done this, you know, where in America, we're just, we're just straight up lying that autonomous vehicles are possible and putting them on the road and doing experiments on uh, with the public. But in Europe, they're like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's driverless. Yeah. <laughs> I love the, the, the wired headline about this from um, a, a couple months ago is remote driving is a sneaky shortcut to the robo taxi. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> or the, uh, the local um, Las Vegas news uh, KTNV 13 headline put these driverless vehicles can now be spotted on Las Vegas streets. I mean, none of, again, none of these are lies. They are driverless. Uh, it is it is a robo taxi, but only uh, because there's a teledriver in it. I mean, like again, I honestly can't hate this at all. Um, like, and the service is really artificially cheap right now too, because you know this is how these startups go. They're 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 coasting on that money, and so I think it's on. It's like thirty cents a minute because it's also uh, it's a thing that you rent by 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 usage. So you rent it by minute of use time. Um, 
but it's only 30 cents a minute from the moment that you have the electric vehicle delivered to you, you hop in, you drive to your destination, you know, 30 cents a minute. I mean, these are these are prices that are like when Uber first started and they were they were basically paying you to take uh to take Uber rides. Uh like it, it, I, it, I just it's so is- funny to me. It's such a funny thing to be like yeah, no, we 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 can't do autonomous mobility. Nobody really can. So let's just fully embrace teledrivers. Uh, and instead, it's like it's still sharing economy shit. You know, like you're just gonna you're just gonna share this electric vehicle with everybody else, and you're gonna rent it by the minute. Um, but like, there's no person there that you have to deal with. But you also never have to worry about some robot running you over because it it thinks that you're a, a green traffic light. This is also, you know, a really great example of how one of the reasons we also rail so much uh, against uh, technological innovation as deployed by Silicon Valley is because it is not actually innovation. You know, if you and me and Jeremy sat down together and tried to invent a way for people to get around in cities... Um, there's no way in fucking hell that we would create this system because if you step back and actually look at the system, it makes no sense to deploy and foist onto the public. All right, so we want to create an alternative to buses and to trains and to driving a car yourself and getting a car yourself. Uh, we want it to be cheap. We want it to be fully accessible, and we want the prices to make sense and be in line with your usage. So we're going to have a driver. We're going to do remote driver and and plug them into you. So we're going to choose drivers, presumably in locales where there's not really much of a minimum wage. We're going to you know, implement designs for cars specifically that allow for the driver to be piped in, control your car, have minimal delay, um, get you to your destination. And then we're also gonna charge you rates that are lower than, um, lower than what it actually costs to, uh, to drive around yourself or, you know, to get a car elsewhere. And of course we know that like, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of this is done in the name of, you know, capturing monopoly uh, rents, right? Because you want to soak up the public, but in, in that pursuit, what are you doing? You're, you're sweeping up a large labor pool and an oversupply of workers to keep the prices though, and paying them below minimum wage so that you can deny and deny them the chance to get higher wages so that you can, you know, soak up more capital that's flowing around from investors that maybe might be that in some world could actually be used for a more socially productive thing. Maybe if we want to pretend Silicon Valley capital is, is used for that, but instead it's being soaked up by your scheme to monopolize suboptimal forms of transit and below minimum wage compensation for other drivers and then we're going to do that on top of the fact that, like, in all cities across, especially here, uh, adding more cars to the road is just increasing the fucking traffic, 
increasing the time that you're going to spend, so increasing the money that you're going to spend on it, increasing pollution, so reducing your quality of life there, um, and also just in, in, in making it incredibly more miserable, right, and odious and tedious. So we're going to do all that, and God knows how many other externalities, uh, so that, and we're going to sustain the system so that for three to five years you get hooked onto it. Um, we make out with bandits. The thing loses half the value that we made out with bandits with, and we reapply them to other investments that serve no real purpose other than to hurt people's life expectancies, uh, you know, people's quality of life, people's experience in a city, but make us rich enough to just keep going from, from sh- zombie company to zombie company to zombie company to, somehow converting externalities that hurt the population through some alchemic process that only venture capitalists know into money without actually generating any real value and by actually and 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 by insisting that since we have to quantify everything we're actually making everything worse right because if we if we're quantifying everything so that we can put it on the market then we're degrading the quality of every single good and service that might otherwise have been maintained better because all the people in the community know each other right you might have actually had a better time or an easier time if there was infrastructure if there's social infrastructure in place outside of the marketplace where you could just organize a basic ride with people that you know in your community and instead, we have to go to the. You have to use the stupid fucking app. Um, that's just a, that's just a trap. It's just a fucking trap. But it's it's our unwillingness to take a technological failure and spin it into a story of innovation. It's our unwillingness to do that which prevents us from raising a a ninety five million dollar Series B round. You know uh, that that's that's what it is. Like it's our unwillingness to say stuff like the teledriving technology enables driving without a safety driver in the car for the first time in European road traffic. Why is there no safety driver in the car? Because you're the one driving the car. (laughs) 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 You are both passenger and driver. It's our unwillingness to, uh, to, to spin failure into innovation um, that prevents us from uh, from pulling down these hundred million dollar investment rounds, you know. That's that, that like, uh, and and it, we're just ceding ground to them. You know, people are willing to do that. My my nightmare, my nightmare is that in five years, teledriving is going to be seen as some legitimate service, much in the way delivery driving and and deliver food delivery driving is going to be seen as a legitimate service. And people will fight us and others on the idea that this should not be a form of work or even or a product offered to people, that it should be illegal, you know, not only because it is bullshit on the highest level, but because it is part of this, it just, this, this painfully obvious attempt to, again, put everything on the fucking marketplace so that you can extract more rents from it and degrade the quality of it and convince people there's no way to do this outside of the market. That the market is the only way that you that you are you having trouble getting to work? You don't like the apps? Uh you don't want public transit? The market will find a solution. And this solution that comes out of the market is actually the best possible solution until another one comes out. When it turns out that each thing that the market is pushing out is shitty and it's shitty for a reason, which is that this is one of the worst ways to innovate technological solutions to social problems. Mark, they don't work. 
how many how many how many times does Silicon Valley start do Silicon Valley startups have to make some bullshit thing for the for it to be like thought of as anything other than like you know a rule right there's there's a reason why 90% of these fucking startups fail there's a reason why most billion uh, companies never become unicorns and it's a reason why if you were to do a real analysis of the firms that do become unicorns and had venture capital funding that you'd find clustered networks right and high correlation between who knows who and who went where and and the and and and, wh- and what pools of capital they're able to dip into and who worked at them you know this is a better predictor than whatever bullshit idea they're selling and and slinging like 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 mud pies at the fucking wall and it's not even clear what solution or what problem they is solving either. I mean, other than I guess on the like the consumer demand side, solving the problem of wanting to take an Uber but not wanting to have a driver. You know, not like either one like wanting to drive yourself and or not wanting to confront another human um, in the car. Uh, and, and on the and on the company side, the only solution it seems to be, uh, or the only problem it seems to be solving, is the same one that self checkouts do at grocery stores, which is how do you have one teledriver or one attendant oversee multiple technologies at once, rather than having one cashier per register, one driver per Uber. Instead, you can have one attendant to uh, a dozen self checkouts, one teledriver for half a dozen vehicles so yeah the the problems it's solving is on the on the consumer side the problem of um confronting another person's humanity uh and on the company side the problem of uh paying labor it's it's also it's just like like you said i do think and i and i wonder and i fear that a lot of we're going to start seeing a second and a third wave of tech startups come up that are going to offer more saleable more digestible versions of uh, a lot of the really exploitative borderline slave labor um operations that were going on that people still accepted but feel a little bit guilty about because really if you want a driver, get a taxi. And if you want to get somewhere, honestly, cheaply, take the bus or the subway. And if you don't, and do take a car, that's fine. But also then, you know, tip in cash as much as possible. And, like, these are the sort of calibrations, right? You know, I live in New York City. You can take a cab once anywhere. I take a cab if I'm in Manhattan uh, out of the out of Manhattan or into or into the Bronx, right? You tip in cash. Um, but if you don't want to do that, and they prey upon, you know, that people who don't want to do that, maybe they're pressed for time. Maybe they have um, fears and anxieties about what cabs are, and they think they're much, you know, much more dangerous than they actually are. Uh, maybe they are. They don't care really frankly about uh, uh, you know labor conditions behind the app but you know there's a there's a pressure going on to not use these sorts of apps then you can still use this 
you still buy into the still similar model. Still, it's, it's you know, I'm not really also clear. One thing I'm also not clear about this, and I I'm, am interested in this. What is, you know, the business model? I doubt it's any different from like what Uber and Lyft do in terms of rates, right? The pro- it's probably worse. It's probably actually worse because you're not like, are you being assigned rides as a remote driver? Or is it that a re- you, you you're you know are you in a pool of remote drivers and you're waiting, you know where are the remote drivers like there's there's a few questions there which I'm also curious about which but also like just this general structure of it makes me think it's about the same or worse than Uber and Lyft in which case they they succeeded they did something that will benefit they'll they'll benefit from that gap between the desire to use it the failure of other transportation infrastructure that drives people to use it um but guilt about it so they are hiring uh remote drivers for las vegas so they are geographically located at least for now because they only have like a like vegas is their first big like trial in the u.s for this so they are hiring remote drivers for vegas um and so we i can look at like they have the job ad up right now you know um and here's what the what's labeled under the responsibilities, you know, remotely drive vehicles to from customers or transfer vehicles within the operating area via a remote driving station, interact with they users and provide excellent customer service, perform test drives as a safety driver or teledriver according to test protocols, support our engineering team with performing data collection and test reports as necessary. And you may also be asked to perform other fleet and administrative tasks to support operation and positive customer experience. Now, here's the here's what you have to uh, your profile um, to be uh, hired as a remote driver. You have a clean U.S. driving license, at least two years of driving experience with Uber, Lyft, taxi, or similar. You like to drive and consider yourself a safe and responsible driver. Safety is first, second, and third at they. A passion and interest in technology or gaming. A bonus if you have an interest in autonomous driving and mobility. Able to be organized and well-structured. You are resilient and have a troubleshooting mindset. You work independently without much direction or instruction. Now the pay. The pay starts at $18 an hour, rising up to $25 an hour, dependent upon experience. Uh, You'll work in an office setting in downtown Vegas and will provide drinks and snacks. Opportunity for career growth in one of Europe's best-funded startups in the mobility space. Uh, He'll be joining a highly committed, experienced, fun, and international team from over 30 countries. Nice, thoughtful, and fun team events throughout the year. So, I mean, honestly, you mentioned uh, Joanne McNeil's wrong way. The ad here sounds exactly like the ad um, in her novel for people. You know, are you passionate about driving? Are you do you do you value safety? Uh, you know, then then you're perf- Then you'll be perfect for this job that pays eighteen dollars an hour, which, by the way, is just slightly above the fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. I mean, that's that's the job, right? And and I love the idea that you have to have two years of driving experience with like Uber, Lyft, taxi, or similar. 
you know, because because uh, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. Yeah, sounds like uh, a scam. Framed, this is framed as a career step forward if you're an Uber driver, which in some ways and in a lot of ways it actually is. It seems at least to be where you're like you're not actually driving a car. You're just sitting in a gaming rig uh, and and doing it from an office. But like. But like this is what career progression in the gig economy looks like. It means spending however many years as an Uber driver and then finally getting your big break by going and being a teledriver for they. It makes you wonder if these people have to go work in an office. Like, are they taking one of these they transports to and from the office too? Is that like mandatory that you have to do that as well? Save on like company parking. Or like, you know, at least save it for like fleet management. Yeah, no, you're, you're teledriving yourself to the office, uh, which just means you are driving yourself to the office. <laughs> I saw this come across my desk like right before we were recording. I, I, I knew I knew this would be this was perfect for us. It's just it's such a funny premise for a startup and one that has become one of the like most well-funded startups in Europe uh, <laughs> right now. I mean, it's just just absolutely amazing. You know, we, and, and is... for Vegas to be their first like uh, test market. You know, it's a they're based in Berlin, Listen. and then Vegas is their first like U.S. test market. When we do the jihad, we will free Vegas. We will free them from the sphere. We will free them from the cars that they're putting in their roads and running over their people. We will free them from whatever the fuck else experiments are going. The casinos. Definitely the fucking casinos. We will free them from everything. Uh, they did. And, and uh, this must have been launched. I don't know if it was, but it must have been launched as part of um, CES. Because the, t- the timing is just uh, too coincidental. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think yeah, I think they probably advertised it there. I mean, Ed Zetron was sharing mind-numbingly stupid uh, startups over there that make me, yeah, you know, I, as I already said, you know, send some emails to the Federal Reserve. They would make me want to send some to them. And so, <laughs> I, yeah, I definitely think that's what's going on. But interest rates are already risen, Ed. How high do they have to go to eliminate this nonsense? We will find out. <laughs> they could go higher. <laughs> they could go higher i think in- interest rates need to be more targeted you can't just have these like across the board rises we need to have like really targeted interest rate hikes for specific sectors specific classes of investment you know some people will say hey they they hiked rates ed and the assets only grew in value, and now the tech stocks are at their all-time high what do you think about that and i think we got to raise them higher man this just confirms my priors. <laughs> you know, that's all that does. <laughs> no, seriously, it confirms something's deeply wrong. That's what it yeah. is. Absolutely. <laughs> to be real. To be very to be really real, <laughs> something's wrong. wrong. Well, I, I did not expect to do um, to spend 
almost an entire episode on Jungle Jim and and they. Uh, but there, but there we are. There we go by the grace of God. Um, right. that, um, but to wrap up, because we do have a little bit more time um, to wrap up, I, I do I do think I would we would be remiss to not uh, do a big old. Um, uh, we told you so. We saw it coming. The most predictable thing in the world um, happened. Uh, Sam Altman at the World Economic Forum in Davos uh, <laughs> said, "You know, um, while while he was there giving a a, a a talk on stage, his company was busy uh, silently removing language in its terms of service, banning its AI from quote unquote military and warfare applications." The most predictable thing in the world happened. OpenAI has said to the military and warfare, uh, "We are open for business." Of course, of course they are. Of course, and and as you said on 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 Twitter, Ed, uh, only only a rube would be shocked by this uh, this turn of events. Jathan, I swear to God, I swear to God, the night before this announcement. I had gone to two parties where I guess I had a sign on my head that said debate me about open AI for some reason, because everyone wanted these people kept getting questions about open AI. I kept, kept the conversation kept steering there actually. And then we'd argue about it. And what did every single one of these people say as they, as continued to say in the previous week also, because I've been working on a project about AI, um, you know, these people, specifically the the people who I talked to the night before struck me the most because they're all like, well, why would OpenAI, you know, go into the military business, right? Or OpenAI is different from firms like Palantir and Rural, right? They're not a military contractor. They don't need to be a military contractor. And then when you try to talk to them about, okay, well, let's say you create a company that offers a service that historically gets part offered up to governments and agencies and militaries. And your product is currently, you offer that product to every single or agency or government or attempt to partner with every single sort of agency or, um, you know, state, but you haven't done it with militaries yet. Is it more or less likely, you know, is it reasonable or less reasonable to assume the military is going to come up soon. None of them will be like, no, no, no. But it, but but the people at OpenAI, man, they believe in the future. You know, they want to. They they believe in responsible development. They have a mission to humanity. A fiduciary you know, responsibility to humanity. Right, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Why would one? Why did anyone? You know, it's sucker shit. If you believed any of that before the coup and after the coup, get the fuck out of here. Come on, man. Come on, man. They literally had a boardroom coup. Every time there's a boardroom coup at one of these Silicon Valley companies, it kind of baffles me when people don't understand them, especially in terms of capital, right? I mean, like, it took two years after the the boardroom strike at Uber for people to really understand it, right? For two years, a lot of people ate up the rhetoric about how oh the reason why there was a boardroom coup is because of the culture at uber uh the no the reason why there was a boardroom coup is because they didn't ipo fast enough and investors wanted their money and they wanted a ramp to exit and they were mad as shit and so they shanked 
Travis Kalanick, and then went public. Travis Kalanick himself had said for years that there was no reason why they should go public, right? That that would eviscerate them. That what they should instead be doing is dealing with capitalists or in dealing with financiers on these private markets, inflating the valuation, shoring up their uh, position and consolidating, and then they can venture into something. But it was too early because they still had competition or because they hadn't secured a duopoly with, you know, left with a bunch of, there were a bunch of reasons why it was not the time. And it took a while before the analysis stepped out of the sort of like, you know, was still tainted by the access phase and started to get critical. And similarly, you know, even though we are in a critical phase of tech commentary, I think it was a little baffling to read the coup as anything other than like, Okay, this is okay. We're open for business, like you said, right? Like, you know, wheels will help you figure out how to kill 5% more people at those weddings. We'll help you figure out how to, you know, surveil and detain more people. We'll help you figure out do more targeted, precision targeted assassination regimes and, and programs, right? Why was this, why it was, it was assumed that OpenAI would not eventually partner with the Pentagon, it's ridiculous, and anyone who insisted otherwise just should not be taken seriously. And anyone still insisting otherwise should not be taken seriously. It's 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 absurd. It's a, it's it's really uh, like unbelievable to believe otherwise, because I mean, one, OpenAI is a Microsoft company. Microsoft is a massive contractor with yeah. the U.S. military. Yeah, uh, problem number one. Number two, it was widely reported uh, when. Sam Altman was president of Y Combinator, that he was having meetings with undersecretaries from the Department of Defense um, to talk about how to like bring Silicon Valley's startup culture into the into the Pentagon. Uh, you know, fucking uh, foolish to to not see this as like the, the as the the logical next step. But in in every single way, I mean, also the fact of the matter is, is that like you know. By Sam Altman's own admission, uh, the the operating expense uh, at OpenAI um, and with ChatGPT in particular uh, just hemorrhages money. It it is it is as he put it, it's eye watering the amount of money it costs. Um, so there's a drive there for revenue. You know, you you got to start making money if you're going to keep spending a hundred thousand dollars a day uh, maintaining this uh, this system. Which apparently as well, uh, I was listening to Trash Future um, and Riley was talking about how he's been on some um, of the like ChatGPT forums uh, and people have been starting to complain that ChatGPT has become lazy. Uh, it's been like refusing to do people's request. Um, and so it'll be stuff like you'll ask it to do like make a hundred instances of this thing and it will give you like 20 and then say uh, like that's good enough. It would be wasteful of resources to do anymore. Or you know? <laughs> Which I'm also <laughs> wondering if these are like limiters that OpenAI is putting in the use of the system to try to help conserve like compute cost um, from people who are using uh, eye-watering amounts of compute for like absolute nonsense, you know, Bullshit. make me a thousand bedtime stories for my child. It makes you funny <laughs> and is like, that's fucking good enough, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> 
don't know if you guys saw there was a article that came out recently where there was an Amazon, a bunch of Amazon stores. The descriptions of things were supposed to be written in Jet Chat GPT, and it said uh, this item or the, uh, this use for Chat GPT cannot be confirmed, or some just like jargon like that. So it was like thousands of these items. If you put that text, then you can look it up. So they're just being like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Nah. Yeah, like I mean, the the terms of service for Chat GPT becomes like at once more and more open uh, because it's like we're open for business for military and warfare, but also seemingly more and more restrictive for like uh, consumer retail users. Um, so I've, uh, just very funny things happening over there already um, in terms of like how they're pivoting, who they're opening up to, who they're constraining with the use of the technology. Um but also all things that are completely predictable. There is real. There's no money. Uh, like there's there's not there's not anywhere near the amount of money to be made from like retail use of ChatGPT as there is from like Pentagon use of it. So of course they're going to pivot to those applications. I also saw that OpenAI is currently hiring engineers to work on um, uh quote-unquote government and non-profit uh, initiatives at OpenAI. Um, so I like I like bundling those two things together to kind of try to uh, uh, throw a smokescreen. Um, oh, these are government and non-profit initiatives. What? What does that mean? I'm the fucking goose in the meme chasing the uh, OpenAI. What do you mean government and non-profit? What do you mean? on that note and then we can wrap up as well at the same time when sam altman was at davos uh talking you know when open ai was changing its terms of service sam altman was also on stage talking about how uh the OpenAI is, ex- as as Bloomberg reports, accelerating its work on election security, devoting resources to ensuring that its generative AI tools aren't used to spread political disinformation. Sam Altman said in the in the same interview, "quote Elections are a huge deal. I think it's good that we have a lot of anxiety, and th- this is coming on the hills as well of a." Um, uh, of a of of a report released by the World Economic Forum, one of these um, you know expert surveys that it does, uh, where <laughs> apparently the the biggest quote unquote the biggest short term threat to the global economy AI driven misinformation, um, and so once again the World Economic Forum. All of the uh, the the experts at Davos, um, people like Sam Altman, are banging the drum about the one true risk of AI is political misinformation and disinformation. Um, so, on one hand, uh, Sam Altman is saying we are providing the solutions for election security. Um, we should all have a lot of anxiety about this problem. I do not know where this problem may or may not be arising from, but we are guaranteed to provide the solutions for it. I, I, I just think it's very funny as well that, and this is something we have talked about before, that like whenever these people, uh, um, whenever these people 
these the Davos set want to hand ring about AI, um, if they're not doing it in an existential risk kind of way, where it's going to you know eliminate all of humanity, the the one way that they do it, especially when they want to present themselves as like very serious thought leaders who are you know realistic and pragmatic in their analysis of the world, the one the one thing that they always bring up is disinformation, political disinformation. None of the actually existing harms and consequences of AI systems, of automated decision-making, you know, I mean, we've talked about it extensively, but just the, the, the way in which for one, one example is all of the reporting in Europe right now around like these welfare, these AI welfare systems that are just systematically denying, uh, you know, um, people of color and women from gaining welfare benefits, flagging them for uh, extremely invasive police investigations for supposed fraud. You know, what a, like, no, none of that, none of these like actual real material already existing consequences of AI are the problem. It's, it's the, we, we're thinking big picture here, Ed, because we're very serious, uh, pragmatic realist. It's political disinformation is the problem. It makes it makes me think of uh, remember that long fucking essay in the Wall Street Journal that Henry, mm. Eric Schmidt, and Daniel Huttenlocker published, um, where they speak in these like reverential tones about the sublime power of Chat GPT. But Chat the GPT wa- sucked me off. It licked my balls and taint. I remember that essay. I yeah, forget but, the, it. but the one thing they hand ring about as a potential risk of Chat GPT mm-hmm. is political disinformation. Right. I don't. What what is it? Why? I mean, like I I know why, but why is it that the Davos set can own? Like, why are they so hyper fixated on hand ringing about political disinformation? There's a bit of a minefield, right, with the disinformation discourse, right? Whether or not you know how how should we feel about uh, whether or not there's a potential state actors or stupid ideas in the pearl's head. Um, so I like the way I like to think of it generally is there's just like a vaguely, not a vaguely, there's a, there's an anti-democratic ethos, uh, within most of the elites in this country and most of the world, I would say, um, that manifest differently across a lot of domains. And, Sometimes will pop out because there's a legitimate crisis, and sometimes will pop out because there's an opportunity that just confirms their priors. Um, and so I think a lot of people are willing to say a lot of stupid shit, or jump on a lot of stupid shit, or theorize about a lot of stupid shit because they just don't like democracy anyway, and are looking for excuses to kind of like talk down to talk down about how stupid the average voter is, how stupid the average citizen is, how intelligent they are by contrast, how much we need to con- figure out a ways to, you know, watch over, supervise, constrain, um, you know, vet um, in one way or another, um, kind of like legitimize, but also delegitimize. Legitimize the, the expressed opinions, but delegitimize them and question them. Uh, of I think the general person and the vote and general voter. That's my sense of it. I'm just like you know, my my as someone who was Chomsky pilled at the low age at a young age, 
and then who was very interested mainly in his um, uh, contempt, I would say, for elites uh, on this question because of their contempt for democracy. And then going from there and getting really interested in democratic theory and philosophy in America, I just don't think they believe in democracy and and that this bubbles over in a million different ways. But especially when you when you combine tech illiteracy or ignorance, um, class, uh, the, the arrogance of this class, and then the anti-democratic ethos that kind of pops up over and over, and then whatever jingoism is like, you know, in the in the air at the time. Yeah, there's a really telling uh, sentence here from this report about um, the uh, about the World Economic Forum's concerns on on disinformation. This is from the Guardian, right? In a deep in a deeply gloomy assessment, the body that convened its annual meeting in Davos next week expressed concerns that politics could be disrupted by the spread of false information, potentially leading to riots, strikes, and crackdowns on dissent from government. The WEF said concerns over the persistent cost of living crisis and the intertwined risk of disinformation in polarized societies dominated the outlook for 2024. I love this idea that, like, if there were riots, strikes, or crackdowns by dis- uh, on dissent from government, it's caused by political disinformation. It goes exactly what you were talking about. If people, if people are up in arms, literally up in arms and marching in the street, it's because they have been tricked and fooled by political disinformation, not because that they have like. Uh, <laughs> Uh, a, a sober analysis of their own material conditions, um, such as through the cost of living crisis that the WEF kind of alludes to. No, the real problem here is disinformation and polarization. People have been fooled. They've had the wool of ideology pulled over their eyes, uh, and AI is to blame. Uh, and, and, and the only way for people to really honestly see that society is good. It's actually good, Ed. I mean, I saw the economic metrics. By <laughs> Everybody's doing really GDP good. GDP right good. <laughs> GDP per capita, even better. Yeah. People are too uh, fooled and tricked and disinformed to uh, to realize that things are actually really good right now. Um, and so that that's the real, that's the real threat to democracy. Not, not the decades-long assault on democracy by people like Eric Schmidt, by people like uh, Rest in Hell, uh, Henry Kissinger, by the uh, the political uh, and capital elites that they represent. Not that's not the threat to democracy. And certainly not in the name of securing infinite and endless amounts of power and profit. No. The real threat to democracy is what if the the sheeple were shepherded by uh, an evil AI into believing that things are actually really bad right now? That's the threat. Yeah, that's the nature of the threat, as they say. Uh, but please don't play that song, Jeremy, because it's crazy as shit. <laughs> so... Uh, so, uh, imagine if Louis Farrakhan and Dr. Umar wrote a song together. Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll be yeah. looking that one up after this yeah. recording. 
funny because it starts off kind of fire. Uh, you know, the first, not the whole, no, I should say the first two lines. He's like, let, it, let freedom ring with the buckshot, but not quite yet. First, we must understand the nature of the truth that, uh, nature of the truth that, and then it's just crazy. Then it's, then it's lies. And it's insane. <laughs> <laughs> as you, as you will, I would love your live reaction once we end this, this, uh, podcast, actually. <laughs> Uh, well, I think that's as good a place as any to end it with, you know, we, we had to we had to end on a classic TMK note, checking in on our old friend Sam Altman at uh, once saying we are open to business for military and warfare applications. But at the same time, we are securing democracy against the one true threat um election insecurity uh and so uh we all right on that note then thank you everybody for listening thanks for subscribing we appreciate your support as always and until next time later adios Yo, 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 yo,